Hey guys, it's Cathy here from Geek Girl Meetup UK and you are joining me for a very special one-off podcast. A few weeks ago we were delighted to welcome the one and only Eileen Burbage along for a live version of Geek Girl Meets. This is the recording from that meetup, so I hope you enjoy it. I don't have the big scary red book of this is your life, so it should be fine. But we already discussed this a little bit in advance, so I'm going to ask another question. Has anyone listened to one of the podcasts before? Wow. Okay, please listen. <laughs> please boost my numbers. It's on iTunes, you can give it a five-star rating. be really appreciated, and I'll stop plugging it. Anyway. The first question I always like to ask when we do one of these podcasts, because I think it's a really interesting question, I did give you full warning on this, was what did you want to be when you were growing up? I didn't know for the longest time, but I do remember when I was about 11, answering this question <coughs> in class and saying in elementary school that I thought it would be very cool to be the first president of the United States. Um, first female president of the United States, sorry. Yeah, should have been Hillary, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we've, actually, we've actually got something in common because when I was six I managed to convince my dad that I was going to be the first female Prime Minister and then he broke my dreams by telling me about Margaret <laughs> <laughs> So obviously that's a very, very big ambition. Yeah. Now, it didn't last that long. No? It didn't last okay. that long. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shut up basically um, and I'm going to ask you how you got from wanting to be the first female President yeah. to where you are today and the multitude of different roles that you do. So, okay, partner at Passion Capital, we have FinTech Envoy for Asian Treasury, Chair of Tech City UK, Mother, yeah. So the journey, so it's um, it's a little embarrassing because it's not planned out, and I think that I'm very, very lucky. I think I'm one of the luckiest person, people that I know, and I think the only sort of thread that's in there is that I kind of when I look at new options or new opportunities or making a change, my sort of question is, you know, how bad can it be? Or, you know, is it going to be uh, incrementally better than what I have now? As in, if I'm going to lose something, maybe I won't do it, but if there's nothing to lose and there's just something to gain, why not? Um, so I um, really didn't know what I wanted to do, but because I was uh, raised by Chinese uh, parents that had immigrated to the States, very classic tiger mom and tiger father sort of parenting, I was not given too much choice, and it was very clear I was going to go to university. It was very clear I was either going to study uh, law, medicine, or engineering. I had those three options. <laughs> I went into engineering and then switched to computer science because I thought it was easier coursework halfway through. And I do have my parents to thank because when I graduated in 1993, obviously then, you know, right about the time where you'd want to have a computer science degree. Um, and I was working for a telecoms company first and went by way of Texas to California to work for um, a telecoms operator. Um, but when I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area, I remember being aware, this is now early 1994, that there was this really cool company called Apple in Cupertino. There was a great company called Intel. There were these like cool companies doing very cool tech things. And even back then, they were talking about things like what we now call autonomous vehicles, but you know, self-driving cars and all these really cool things that tech can do. Um, and so I did leave that telecoms company and joined Apple. Um, and for the last, or the, those 10 years that I was in Silicon Valley, I worked for Apple, I worked for Sun, which is now part of Oracle, but came up with things like the Java programming language, um, and I worked at JavaSoft there. I worked for a company that was uh, doing mobile internet stuff back in 1999, went public. So I did do the whole dot-com boom, a little bit of the dot-com crash. And I think actually what was more informative was the couple years I witnessed of the crash. Because I was raised, as I already mentioned, by sort of tiger parenting and was sort of told if you work really hard and you apply yourself at what you do, then you'll be successful or at least you'll be secure and the whole thing. And the whole mantra was you work hard and you earn your, you know, your sort of position or your right to do things. And actually watching the dot-com boom and the bust was really quite um, telling because I saw some of the smartest people that I knew, you know, working as hard as you could possibly work, not necessarily fare very well. And at the same time, I saw people that, you know, were nice people, but it wasn't like they were rocket scientists or particularly, you know, even interesting. And they were not necessarily working really hard, but because they would time something very well, like a move to a company, for example, they would come away with millions, literally millions. So I saw this left and right. And it was really kind of interesting because I realized maybe for the first time, um, you know, how much luck had a, had a role in things and how much timing did. And, and really, it wasn't just a meritocracy. And I think that's a kind of a tough life lesson, but I think it's 
probably uh, still true today. And so I stayed in Silicon Valley for 10 years and thought this is where I'm going to be. There's no reason to go anywhere else. But like um, a bit of an arrogant American thought, it would be nice to have international experience for a year or two <laughs> to add to my CV. But because uh, even though I studied French in high school, I didn't really speak foreign languages enough to work abroad, I picked London. So I speak language. <laughs> and um, that was early 2004, and I came out on a scouting mission. I came away with two job offers. First one was with Shazam which at the time, this is, this is ancient history now, we're talking 2004, this is pre-iPhone, which means really the company was in trouble. Um, so I don't know if you remember this, but it was the iPhone that saved Shazam as a company. Um, it was a technology looking for a problem to solve, but it really sort of fit the mold because they had Silicon Valley office, they had a London office, I got it, I understood it, um, it had IP, it had to have this whole thing. And then I had another offer from a company called Skype, which Nobody could pronounce, nobody knew why you needed it, because this is again aging me, I don't know how many people really remember this, but at this day and age you already had Yahoo Messenger, AOL Instant Messenger, MSN Messenger, all these things could do VoIP calling. You could actually do voice calls if you wanted to, but it was crap, it was, nobody used it. So it was sort of like, why do we need another one? But I thought what was fascinating about Skype was that the two founders had also done Kazaa before that, which is obviously one of the first music file sharing networks in the world. Um, you know, um, with the likes of Napster and so on. And so I thought it would be very cool to kind of see what they could do if they applied, you know, kind of their thinking to this kind of space. I also thought, again, very arrogantly, I'm only going to be there for a year, so really it doesn't matter. Like, how well they're going to do as long as they can pay me a salary and I can learn some things. And I also thought, you know, development team was in Estonia. How cool would it be to travel between London and Estonia and stuff. So for those reasons, I took the job at Skype, but it was so early. Um, that I spent months and months telling people it was called pronounced Skype as opposed to Skype E because of trailing E. Now it's very obvious, but at the time nobody could understand that it was pronounced Skype. Why did you have this extra E? But that's how early it was. There were five of us in um, actually this managed office space that's above the firehouse on Shaftesbury Avenue. So now people recognize right in Soho or above Chinatown. That's where we worked in a tiny, tiny room that was probably smaller than the size of this before that separation. Um, and uh, I became head of product for Skype. It was one. It was ridiculous. I mean, I could talk hours about the Skype experience because it was well, obviously my sort of favorite career experience and really helped, I think, shape a lot of the way I think now. But it's one of those things that really could be a movie. For instance, I walked in on the first day and, you know, be wary of interviewing for companies <coughs> that worked in co-working spaces because, or managed space, because I had all my interviews in a meeting room. And I never really thought during the interview process, oh, can I go see your office? You know, you don't really ask them, oh, go to the interview and you can try and behave and impress people and then that's it. When I reported to work the very first day, I walked into their office space, and like I said, a small English room. There was, you know, the receptionist was in one corner, Nicholas was in another corner, Giannis, who's the other co-founder, all his stuff, like his personal effects, was up, piled up against one wall in the corner, because he'd been kicked out of his flats, and he was like, you know, so literally, like, from his, you know, boxer shorts to, like, everything you know, was in one side. There were two interns, and it was like, oh my god, what have I done? Like, where have I come? This is, I can't believe this. But um, I ended up staying there for about a year, year and a half, the company obviously uh, did very well, and we had an amazing time. Um, it was one of those experiences where, you know, we pulled about, on average, two all-nighters a week. I didn't have kids, didn't have a partner at the time. And everyone just worked, maybe took a break to go to dinner and have some new drink, but then came back to work. It was literally non-stop, and we used our own products, or used our own dog food, if you will. And because we had group IM, the reason IM worked so well on Skype, even better than voice initially, is because that's how we communicated, almost like everyone uses Slack today. Uh, so we'd have group chats, and even if you'd go to sleep, and when you'd go to sleep, we'd all leave our laptops open, and the first thing you'd do when you wake up, like, you'd have your laptop, so you'd scroll back in history to see what you missed for people, other people working through the night. So it was kind of a crazy thing, but it was obviously hugely rewarding was, um, and very fulfilling. And I left right around the time the company was sold to eBay. Another side story, which people might come across, is I was fired by Nicholas. That's a whole other thing, and I don't necessarily think, I don't wear it as a badge of honor, but I'm not sort of ashamed by it, embarrassed by it. He was the founder, he's the CEO, it's his call. We obviously had disagreement, difference of opinion on things, I'm happy to talk about what those are. Um, I also think a big learning was, you know, for me at that time I was, I felt like I was taking a stand and being very principled, and I think I had the luxury to sort of 
piss somebody off so much so that I was standing up for my principal. I wouldn't necessarily advocate everybody do that if you need a paycheck. But it was, uh, it was really, really kind of uh, a good experience and it was probably one of the first times I was sort of, you know, I had that kind of, oh my god, I got fired. Yeah. It took me a while to, to get over that. But it's okay. I'm going to interject a little yeah. supporter. Oh, okay. Do yeah. I um, and also just before you're talking about Nicholas and kind of early selecting, so I, um, I used to work at Albion. Yeah, of course. Goodman, and they were involved heavily in the beginning and I'm just curious now, like, considering your passion and, and Nicholas has Atomico as yeah. well, do you cross paths too much? Have you collaborated on any investments? As well? uh, I think Atomico is a great organization, and Matthias, who's quite the active managing partner, is somebody that we work with or talk to regularly. Nicholas and I ran into each other at tech, early Tech City events. Um, he's not, I think, involved day to day in, in yeah. early stage or the seed stage investing. We are not. Out, out, I think we're civil and polite to each other, but I wouldn't say we're friendly. But this is not my, I, I actually didn't have a problem with that, but um, I think he, he might not be happy with, or maybe he's not happy that I talk about it so freely. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we're not really, we don't really hang out, but that's okay. I think there are lots of people who might not like me. That's okay. Everything's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be an interesting company because you. You know, looking back on it now, you were there, Nicholas was there, he's gone on to do Atomico, that's now funding startups, you're yeah. funding startups, then of course you've got uh, Target, yeah. who is a job to work in transfer work. So it's, it's, yeah. it's part of that kind of like pre generation that's giving birth to more than Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the closest thing that people call it in the Bay Area is like the PayPal Mafia. Yeah. I think um, the Skype group, the early group at Skype, is very similar to that in that a lot of people stay in touch. You know, we had Stan, who was also early at Skype, he went to Andreessen Horowitz, he's now started at his own company. You have Malta, who is actually part of that Skype Mafia's first strike um, in the Bay Area. And I just think um, everyone obviously stayed in Skype. We're of the age that it wasn't anyone's sort of last job where they retired after it. And everyone either went off to another startup to kind of feel that fulfillment again or to work with other people and live vicariously through them to do it again. It was, it was such an amazing experience, an amazing ride, that I would do it again if I could, meaning if I didn't have kids that I felt like I should rush home to see every day, I would love to actually work on some things that was so much fun that I wanted to stay up all night twice a week. That's obviously not practical, so I feel like the closest proxy is investing in new founders and telling them to pull to a little bit of the power from what we do. I don't say that, but I think, you know, to, to have that driver, to have that, yeah. that, 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 I guess, desire to do that, it was amazing. So how did we go from Skype? So when I left Skype, I, I was fired. Um, I, I, um, I went to Yahoo in Europe, so I worked for Yahoo here in London, and I stayed for personal reasons. Um, I, I had my first baby. Um, but when I was on maternity leave from Yahoo, I got sort of, I mean, it was amazing. Seriously, we spent the whole time talking about parenting and working and holding. But anyway, for me, around six-month mark, I started to get a little bit antsy and wanted to kind of get my head back into some things, but actually I was obviously at home full time. And the Skype founding engineers who were still based in Estonia had done really well on the sale to eBay, and they own 5% of the company. They took their proceeds and set up a sort of a private investment fund or an angel fund, 50 million euro. They wanted to invest in early stage startups, sort of a micro VC fund, but they were based in Estonia. So they were trying to get deal flow and business plans, and yet a lot of those were coming from Europe or, or London, and so they would ping me and literally it started with, can you give us your two cents on this business plan? What do you think about this? What do you think about maybe the product idea? What do you think about the this stuff that we're going to have to do? And then it sort of not escalated, sort of evolved into, oh, those founders are actually going through London. Do you have time to meet them? Tell us what you think and the whole thing. And basically I started kind of being their, I guess, ice players on the ground here in London. Um, out of that fund, they made four investments in London in those subsequent two years. So that's like 2006, 2008. Um, three of those investments uh, happened to be co-investments with my now business partner, Stefan Glenzer, at Passion. I didn't know him at the time, but surely after the third one, we're like, who's this guy? He's like, who's this person? And um, that's how I got into investing. It was really just giving them my feedback. Um, but then meeting Stefan, who was an angel investor, he was the first angel investor in Last FM, which was one of the first music sites online. It did scrolling, and it was bought by CBS. Uh, he was one of the first investors in Daily Deal, which is one of those Groupon-type sites that was bought by Google. He had a really great angel track record and had talked about professionalizing his angel activities and raising a small fund. He was one of the first people I remember saying to me in uh, you know, 2007 that he was waiting for a market correction because he thought that's the best time to raise a fund and start investing. And lo and behold, you had the financial crash in, in late 2007, 2008. Um, and so we started working together in 2009. We first set up Whiteberry Yard or opened up Whiteberry Yard where Stripe was first based. 
where at least the first people from Stripe uh, in Europe were based. And it's a co-working space, and we brought some of the companies, we had Angel invested in, or the guys in Estonia had invested in, had them based with us. And we started uh, setting up raising a fund. And we brought in our third partner, who's Robert Tagiro, um, and we raised a close to fund in 2011, our first fund. It's 37 and a half million pounds, so it's not you know uh, hugely ambitious, but the idea is to invest very, very first round, seed round, now called pre-seed, because of inflation, but our average uh, check size was less than 200,000 pounds, for which we were taking on average 15% ownership. So we were really, you know, uh, looking at companies that were valued at a million, million and a half, um, and saying we were going to be very hands-on to help them build these companies into what we thought would, could be world-leading companies out of Europe, because we'd seen it with Skype, Stefan had seen it with Last.fm, he'd seen it with Daily Deal. He had been a founder for Cardo, which was one of the first German online auction classified sites. That sold to QXL, which is the big British one, where Robert was CFO, um, and sold to Naspers for a billion. So we had seen, like, if the 10 years before we set up our fund, if you look at the biggest exit of every year for those 10 years, we had been involved in four of those. So we knew this, that there's this thesis that Europe can do this. There's no reason why it just has to be the Bay Area, you know, and we wanted to be involved in the ones uh, that were going to be next. So that's how I got into passion. Awesome. How did you find the transition moving from the engineering product side of things into VC? Um, I think uh, once you go from engineering into product, I think from a developer's point of view, you've already sold out and gone to the dark side. Um, so <laughs> then if you go to biz dev, it's even worse. But I think going into investing, um, for me, I, I didn't even think of it that way initially because I've always said that I don't think I would have ever been hired by a, a traditional VC. There's no way like Index Ventures or you know Atomico would hire me. I don't have an MBA. Uh, I'm terrible at Excel. I don't know any macros. Uh, I don't know any shortcuts. I'm really bad with maths in my head, even though I'm Chinese. Um, <laughs> I can't do it. Like I can't hold numbers, and I'll be like, I don't know. I don't remember what number it was. I'll read it, and I'll remember, but I don't. I don't remember numbers, so it's really bad. Um, so I'm really not your classic VC, and, and I'm not the kind that we would even scream for if we're looking for associates. But I think what happened was, you know, I think um, the guys in Talon, because they had worked with me, trusted my judgment or my discernment about people. And that's all I was offering initially, because I would just say, I think this is kind of bullshit. Or actually, they're saying this, but everyone says this. Or, you know, and so I could kind of read through that. Um, and I think on the investment side, that's still what I do. I just kind of, I, I think I tell it straight. I think because I used to be on the development side or engineering or working a lot with engineers, I have a pretty decent bullshit meter, frankly. That's really what helps a lot. So if there's somebody talking about like them designing some architecture and like they're the only ones in the world who do that, I'm like first that I'll call bullshit on that. Um, so I think that's really very handy. Um, I also the only other thing I would say is I think you know this comes up a lot when people talk about like coding in schools and just coding and the mindset of being a developer. I think it, it's basically you know using a specific syntax or language for analytical thinking or problem solving. Um, that's what writing code really is. Um, and so I think that's very helpful when thinking about investment theses or thinking about you know, risk and what can happen or outcomes and scenarios. So I do think it lends itself quite well. Maybe um, your stereotypical developer is probably more introverted, although I am INTJ on, on my experience as well. I'm probably more extroverted on an introvert at scale, so that means in meetings or in pitches, I can try and draw things out maybe more than if I was a classic developer. Do you want me to talk about how I got into the other stuff too after passion? Okay, you see any questions from my oh, okay, my hat so now? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you wear many yeah. many hats. So yeah. how do so aside from passion and everything you do there, how did we get involved in Tech City and working with government? I think it's again luck and timing. So I mentioned that we opened a co-working space in 2009. It was the first co-working space in London before Google Campus opened, before Tech Hub opened. It's not because we're like, oh, let's open the first co-working space in London. Actually, it's credit to Stefan because he had worked at Last.fm. Last.fm was always based in East London. Uh, most of the tech companies of that time, I guess, were either in Soho or you know, somewhere more central, and all of VCs were in Mayfair. But Stefan sort of saw what kind of vibe um, was built up by Last.fm and companies that they had you know, sublet to, and sort of said, I want to be in East London. I think that's where all the founders are going to be. It's ridiculous for us to be in Mayfair pay those rents and just have to commute back and forth to see people, we should have an office here. Um, but that was very prescient on his part. And in 2010, the David Cameron administration recognized or decided that they wanted to start paying more attention or giving more sort of credence to the digital sector in the UK. Um, and I think, I, I'm a pretty big cynic, this is what I, sort of the other side of when I say it, 
my euphemism is, is discerning, but really it just means I'm critical and cynical about anything. So I think you know there are lots of reasons that they did that. It's not just for altruism, like, oh, let's support the digital sector. I mean, it, it, politically, it really does uh, speak to a lot of what their messaging was at that time, which was economic growth, jobs growth, productivity, you know, and um, inclusion and all those things. And so it was really easy while factories are shutting down and manufacturing slowing down to be able to be like, look at this digital sector. Shiny. Yeah. And I think it, it was true, though, too, the growth in terms of, you know, proportional growth, obviously not absolute numbers. And so it was a really good political hook. Um, so, for example, one of the first places David Cameron visited when they launched Tech City was our co-working space because he could be photographed with 10 different companies and not just one company. Um, so we got involved with um, we got involved with Tech City that way as being involved and invited to what initially started as sort of breakfasts at number 10 to talk about what they should be thinking about policy-wise. That's where I ran into Nicholas. That was one of the first times I ran into Nicholas after being fired. It was really kind of funny. <laughs> hey, Nicholas. Oh, hi. Hey. We're sat next to each other. And it was kind of like, we're well, just going to pretend like nothing happened. Or we're just going to be like, but actually, like, if, if you run into Nicholas and you run across, you should ask him about sailing. He's big into his yachts now. And that, that's good, because then he'll just talk about his yachts. So I started doing that and actually just started contributing to Tech City um, for a while. Joanna Shields was the first chair. Uh, she was the first CEO, and then she became chair when Gerard was CEO. And when she uh, became a minister, she was a minister for internet safety. Uh, the organization was looking for a new chair, and Gerard very flatteringly asked me to if I'd consider being chair. I also got asked by folks at number 10 that support the organization. I did say no for three months. You made it those for I didn't actually. I said no for three yeah. months. Uh, mostly because, as I said, I'm quite cynical, and at that time, even though I contributed, you know, um, at breakfasts and stuff, I told this to Gerard, he would, he would say this for sure. I was sort of like, I don't know what you need a chair for. I'm not sure what you would necessarily, you know, I want to be able to make some kind of an impact or help with something. I don't want to just be there to say I'm chair because I've got a lot of other stuff going on anyway. So I, you know, I appreciate the offer, but if unless I can see that I can really help, I don't really think it's going to be something I want to do. So I did say no for three months. I said yes, ultimately, because of Jer. Um, so he's the chief executive of Tech City. He did a very classic move, but it was really good, where he was like, okay, that's, I totally get it, I totally understand, but, you know, could we have a couple of chats where maybe I just get your advice, you know, uh, over the next couple weeks. And one of those chats was like three and a half hours long, and we just talked about not me not taking the role, but by the end of it, I obviously, you know, understood how much conviction he had, what a difference he genuinely wanted to make. I felt convinced that, you know, Listen, whether you support the government or not, whether you agreed with their politics or not, they have given a budget to this organization called Tech City. They want to prop up the digital ecosystem. Even if I'm the most selfish person in the world, and I think about just passion, I think about deal flow, and I think about companies we want to invest in, why would you not want to support this organization that's hopefully going to you know, inspire more people to come into the tech sector? So I was convinced there and did that. Um, around the same time, and this is really interesting, like these kinds of things you wouldn't imagine politicians would worry about. It became a little bit of a hullabaloo because um, number 10 didn't know. Uh, back in these days, now it doesn't matter, nobody cares, but apparently like David Cameron's office and George Osmond's office didn't really talk that much, who knew? But <laughs> Chancellor was deciding to like hang his hat on FinTech and thought that it was a very, very important sector that was coming, which also makes a lot of sense politically. Again, I don't think any of this is altruism. They had to bail out four of the country's biggest banks, right? They didn't want to have to do that again. They believed that there needed to be resiliency in the financial services sector. They think the tax contribution from financial services is bigger than any other sector in the country. Um, so they need to make sure that you know that industry sector is competitive and, and sort of looks at innovation and ways to future-proof itself. Enter fintech. And so the chancellor was thinking about, um, I think, appointing what they called an HM Treasury you know, special envoy for fintech, somebody who kind of fly the flag for it. I had started talking about fintech more because at Passion we saw that 30% of our investments were in financial services. So I started talking about this as, you know, a way that I thought London was establishing itself as a tech hub, and the UK was leading the world because I get asked all the time, even just as an investor but with an American accent, why do you think that you can build, you know, unicorns out of the UK, or what do you think that the UK can offer? That why wouldn't companies want to go to Silicon Valley? On and on and all these comparisons, and I genuinely believe which is where, as investors, we put our money, but also, you know, where I spend my time, that fintech is an obvious answer to that, so it's a great case study. So I was also asked to be a special envoy for fintech, which caused a little bit of thing, because then it was like, oh, well, you can't announce a tech city thing, because we're just going to announce this thing, and it was all very strange, because I, I assumed they were all 
coordinated. They were. Um, and then at the same time, just because it makes it more funny, because how the government, I can say this because they're all gone now, but the other thing is the uh, Prime Minister also reshaped his business advisors group this time, because obviously he thought he was going to be in office for another five years because he just won by a majority, which nobody else had ever done. So he reshaped his business advisory group, um, and I was uh, very, again, flatteringly asked to sit on that, where it's the chief exec of, you know, BP, I think, uh, ASDA, I should know, um, but, you know, like uh, Severn Trent, which is, you know, water company, um, EasyJet, uh, the CEO is on there, the chairman of Lloyd's, like all these really big companies, and then it was Jack Ma and myself, so Jack from Alibaba and myself, to talk about digital or to represent startups, which was obviously a huge compliment, and then they ended up killing two birds with one stone because the photo op for announcing me as chair of Tech City was the same day as that first meeting, so I got seated next to the Prime Minister and they used that for all the announcements. So everyone was happy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it started to look ridiculous because I had all these three appointments. Um, but for me, I've rationalized it because I do think they all tie into each other. Like if I'm going to talk about how important the tech sector is for the UK, as I mentioned, I think the best case study is fintech. Um, if I was going to talk about you know what the UK government should be thinking about supporting small businesses, it feeds from everything I do from the digital sector. So it all dovetailed really nicely. Um, and also, again, if there's anything I can do to highlight what's happening in the sector, I think that's a good thing. I was doing it anyway, just for personal reasons, so I felt sort of honored to be asked to do it um, on behalf of the government or with the government. And I think the other thing was, I guess people know I'm not afraid to speak out, <laughs> right or wrong, so I think they felt that, you know, I would at least say something. And then I'm sufficiently removed that they can say I'm not a national employee of the government, so my views don't really... Uh, reflect on the government. Yeah, we <laughs> can't accept the text yeah. too much. Um, while we've just whittled off all of the things that you do, this was a question that came up quite a lot uh, from the audience, and I want to know what the secret is. How do you achieve work-life balance? Do you have work-life balance? Yeah. No, I think it's a really good question, but I do <laughs> think um, there is no such thing. I don't think, because I think there's lots of ways to answer this question, and I've also always really listened eagerly when other people ask the question, Oh, that's a clever way to say it. I mean, I think saving work-life balance assumes that there's like a 50-50 split. And I really think there is no such thing because none of us would ever want to do something 50% or half-assed, right? You, um, we wouldn't want to say, oh, I'm giving my 50% all to work or to family. So you, we try and do 100% and 100% and 100%. And I think there is no such thing. Um, I, I would not say I've achieved work-life balance because I wouldn't, I think the only time Someone who feel comfortable saying this if you're really feeling like I've given everything I can for each facet of what you do. And I think the kind of people we are, the fact that you've come to an event like this on your weekday evening means obviously we're constantly trying to do more. So I think by definition that doesn't really work. I think the best that you can do though um, is to feel like, um, you know, I think that you are content with what you've achieved. You cannot measure it by things like whether or not your colleagues or your partners, I mean, it depends on your situation, of course. I'm very lucky because I'm one of the partners of the firm, but I can't measure myself by whether or not they're necessarily happy with my output. I have to be happy with it, or I have to know that I'm probably my harshest critic, or I have the greatest expectation for myself, not anybody else. I can't sort of think about when the kids, you know, would rather I go to some event um, and how many times they might say that because it's never enough. It's kind of like, this is going to be really unfair to my mom, but you know my mom actually wishes that I responded to texts faster, right? And I've kind of recently realized that it doesn't matter. If I responded to her like in the same day, it would get to a point after a while she'd be like, why aren't you responding sooner? Like, you know what I mean? Like, moms are never happy enough. Right? But, and I know this as a mom. Like, it's not like I'm ever going to be like, okay, you guys, you're, you're suffocating me or you're hugging me too much. Like, my mother actually moved to California after I moved to California and lived in a house that was two doors away from me for years. And then she wonders why I moved to London. But anyway. <laughs> so we got to the point where I was seeing her quite often, and then I'd go over to dinner with her every Sunday. But then, like, and you would have thought when we're living in a separate city, it should be like, that's amazing, right? But then she gets used to dinner every Sunday, and then she's like, oh, why don't we see each other during the week? My point, this is really afraid of my mom. But there's never enough, is what I'm trying to say. You can always do more, and I think we always want to do more. For me, I think. Um, Balance is simply thinking, you know, when you go to sleep at night, there's always, your mental list is still going on, but you, you feel like you've done, you know, the best that you can. And I think the most important thing is not to be apologetic to anybody else. Um, because you don't, oh, I mean, obviously, you want to look after your kids and your, your job duties. But I found and noticed um, if I couldn't make something, if, like, someone asked me to do something in an email and I said, I'm sorry, I can't make it. I used to 
that's literally what I'm right. I'm really sorry, I can't make it. And I started to notice a couple of years ago that my business partners, Robert Sheffman, I don't know if it's a male-female trait, but I think it uh, could be cultural. They would respond and be like, nope, find another time. And it's not like I ever thought that was rude. Be like, that just time doesn't work. But they never said, sorry, that time doesn't work. Yeah. Like, and I would literally type, I'm sorry, I can't make it, you know. And it's just a very subtle thing because, of course, they did mean apologies for any inconvenience to talk work, but they didn't feel the need to actually say sorry. And I think I ended up, I think, apologizing a lot to a lot of you. I still do. But um, I don't think we need to apologize for, you know, anything for doing our best. And I think you can only do your best. I don't think anyone's ever going to achieve balance. Yeah. It's a, I think that's a really, really honest and very truthful answer. Yeah. <laughs> like, I think there's always more you're going to want to yeah. do. And I think if I was, um, if I didn't have kids, there'd be more I'd want to do at work, you know. So, uh, you know, would you define that as work-life balance? And if I had only kids, you know, and I didn't have work, there's more I'd want to do with kids. So, I don't think it ever ends. Yeah. <clears throat> Just on the, the kids side, how many kids do you have? The reason I'm pausing is not because I've lost count, but <laughs> <laughs> I have I have birthed four of them, but I have five now because okay. my, my partner has one too. So we have five. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And what's the age range? They're 10, 8, 6, 4, and 1 and a half. Oh, wow. wow. No, okay. No, just out of curiosity, any mothers in the house? One. Well done. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't have to answer this, but. Probably because the mother's at home with the kids, by the way. Because it's dinner time. But, uh, well, I'm not, I'm not. I'm sorry, I'm not to feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing I'm recording this, so we can at least get it out there. Um, women and men in the room who here, you know, if you would really love them would want to have kids in the future. Okay, so I, I feel like that, that's enough to just, just say that in terms of actually managing work and yeah. being a parent, yeah. how, and it doesn't even have to come to work life balance, yeah. how do you manage that? I, I, again, I wouldn't say I manage it because I think there's stuff I could do a lot, lot better, but I do think it's very, very hard. I, I mean, I think it's really hard. I think it'd be silly to say that it's easy or, yeah, like me, it's no problem. I think it's really hard. I think you are never happy enough with all this, kind of what I was saying before. Um, I think that uh, one thing I could say, though, is you can never, you, if you, the way you phrased your question was really good. If you really want to have kids and you're with a partner, you've got a situation to have kids, you can, I don't think it's um, helpful to say we're going to wait until it's a better time. Because I can tell you that there's no good time. You are never going to be like, oh, that was the right nine months for me to like not 500%, or that was the right year for me to like try and recover. Like, it's never a good time. Um, and so, and I think also, as much as you might want to read, because we're all very information sort of driven people, as much as you might want to read or listen or talk and try and prepare, you will never be fully prepared. So I actually think it's better to not try to through because then you might fool yourself into thinking you're prepared, and then you'll be like hit by a bus and be like, oh, that's sucks. So I think don't try and set too many expectations. Don't think you've got it like all set. When it happens, it happens. It's going to be an amazing thing, and you never know how you're going to react, and you can never be too prepared. So don't try and do it too much. Um, but I think you know, one thing about having kids is I think wherever you are in your career, kids put perspective on things that is really hard to explain before you have kids because of course. I would tell you, I'd still tell you with huge conviction when I was working at Skype and I didn't have kids, I you know, had my priorities straight, this is what I had to do. I still think the work that we did was extremely important, but I mean at a personal level, it just helps put things into perspective, um, which I think is very useful. I think it's really, really very useful. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to take away from personal questions now sure. and flip, because one of the, the things that cracked up a lot in the questions that you guys were submitting was actually uh, a lot of people secrets of investment, how do I get money, how do I wow you with my startup. Um, so I'm just going to dive into the investment side of things. But um, one question that I'm curious about as well, I'm going to ask first, is having worked in the Bay Area and having worked in London for like 10 years or so either side, are there any characteristics about San Francisco and the way the ecosystem operates that you wish London had? Um, I wouldn't put it that way. I don't know if there are characteristics I wish London had because I think it's changed a lot. I mean, not I think. I know it's changed a lot. So certainly from when I first came here from Skype. So when I was heading a product, we were trying to hire product managers. This is one of the things Nicholas and I fall out about, by the way. Um, I was told to hire, I don't know, like 10 product managers or something because we had just raised our Series B financing rounds led by Index. Um, and it was like, hire, because obviously we should be able to do more if we have a bigger team. And I was the only product person at the time. Um, and in the year that I was there, we launched, you know, not only Skype, but we also launched 
uh, Skype out, Skype in, sort of voice calling, inbound and outbound telephone numbers as well, and voicemail. So, and we also did clients for Windows, Mac, and uh, Windows Mobile, if anyone remembers that. So we had a lot of product clients, but we didn't really have a team that scaled at the time, and I was really told to hire, which of course I would gladly do. And I'd done in the Bay Area, but I'm not kidding, and I'm not exaggerating. We had, I think, like three or four recruitment agencies or headhunters working for us, and this, again, it's 2004, and nobody knew the, the job title software development manager, software product <coughs> manager. It did not exist, and I'm not exaggerating. Um, so if there's like a way back machine, you could go look. There's no, there's no job listing for that, because I would get CVs of people who were like the product manager for the USB bundle in the T-Mobile store. And I would have to explain to the editor, that's not what I mean by product manager, I mean a software product manager, and the role genuinely didn't exist. And that's what it was like when I first moved here 13 years ago. Um, and so if you'd ask me that question then, yes, absolutely. Now, I, I, the world, I think London has changed dramatically in terms of the tech ecosystem sector, and you're all reflective of that, or representatives of that. Um, I think for a while there was a difference in culture and how people would pitch or present themselves. Um, and, you know, Americans, if they put themselves in this role, which most founders in America do, they could pitch everything. <clears throat> they could spin and make everything sound amazing. Um, and here in the UK, not just British people, but Europeans or people who were here were much more modest about it and simply, you know, weren't actually necessarily used to being credited for standing out or for saying they were better or different than other people. And so I don't think that was ingrained in the culture. Um, and so I had for a long time, I, you know, we'd see pitches, say there were Americans that were expats here that would pitch and you know, say great things. And my business partner still does this, Robert Tiro. If you tell him you're the best at what you do, he will genuinely believe you. Like, the guy said he was like number one. I'm like, of course you would say that. Why would you say that? What are you talking about? He like takes you at face value because he's British and he's like, why would he say it if he wasn't true? Why would he not say it? He's trying to get you to invest. Like, we just completely different points of view. And I think so. He still does this, by the way. And I, of course, I don't know why, but I think everyone's an idiot until they prove me right. Not everyone in this room, of course. But there's just like, like if someone's pitching me, I assume they're going to be pitching. Like, they're going to be overshooting because they're going to be trying to impress you, and then. I want to see the proof of that or to see someone back that up. He was the totally opposite way. He would believe them at face value until they proved him wrong and he was like, oh, that's not quite right. And I think that's probably indicative of what the biggest difference was. The only other things would be about the ecosystem is just, and that just takes time, but it's the sort of um, the multi-generations of what was happening in the Bay Area. So whether it's PayPal Mafia or other groups, you even have, you know, there are all these stories, right, about you could have been a PA at Microsoft and if you got options in the early days, you'd make so many millions that you were set for life, you, you know, I'm not saying anything's wrong with PAs, but I'm just saying every, every job uh, role within Microsoft, if they were there at a certain time and played their options right, they were multimillionaires. What they did with that money after, you know, buying houses and everything else was investing in their friends who were starting startups. And this was happening two, three generations, so not a real life generation, but in terms of startup founder generations. We hadn't had that in London. I think we are seeing it now, and as you say, like the Skype sort of mafia, um, and some of the last FM guys they are investing as well and starting new startups. But this is now the first time where you're seeing second, third generation, and you're on to like fifth or sixth in the Bay Area. And that's what I think the ecosystem needed, but that just takes time, and I think it's happening now. Yeah. 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 That's exciting. Um, anti portfolio. Yeah. What's yeah. the, I mean, do you have a couple of startups that you now look back on and you kind of wish you'd invested? Yeah, there are a few. I mean, there's some really, there's some interesting stories because we've seen some stuff so early on. So I've talked about Skype so much. You know, you know, Tobit is a good friend of mine. I've worked with him at Skype. He founded TransferWise. We knew about it so early that actually he was based in our office by Yard when they came up with the idea. And it wasn't even a pitch. It was just a conversation what they were working on. And we passed. And the reason we passed is, actually, I sat out of the meeting because we're such good friends. So I let Robert Stephan get to the meeting. But in the meeting, they said to Tobit, so this is so early, um, but it's all on record. Tobit at the time was not full-time on TransferWise. He was actually chief executive of a Voip business that was based in uh, Zurich. And he was, though, going to lend you know, his name and everything and be the sheriff of TransferWise, and Christo was going to run it. Um, and they were also going to charge a pound of transaction as opposed to a percentage basis. Um, and so the two things Robert Stephan said to him is, one, to talk if you're full-time, we would do this because of how long I had known him and also how much I respect him. Two, if you change your business model to be percentage-based fee, you can be the lowest fee you want, but a pound's not going to work because you need a lot of transactions to make millions <coughs> on a pound each. Um, we will invest. So we passed that first time. Um, they went through seed camp then. Tobit then, during seed camp, quit his job, turned full-time, 
they changed their business model because I think everybody told them the same thing. But by the time they came out, it was too late. So we missed that. Um, so I guess it's in our answer portfolio, but it's our own fault because we passed on it. Other ones that um, I've always really liked, so on Fido is a company that I really liked. Um, they do sort of identity verification based here in London. I think they're fantastic. We sell them too late, um, but I really wish we'd invested. Um, up here, here is another company that I really like, and Ross Bailey is that founder, and we um, all really liked him, but we didn't have unanimous sort of agreement on investing there, so they're in our anti-portfolio. Um, funding circle was too early in that we hadn't set up the fund yet, but we probably should have tr tried to figure out a way, because yeah. we love those guys too. Um, there are more, but I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but we're not, we don't um, lament the ones that we didn't invest in, if that makes any sense. So we've made 62 investments in the last, what is it now, six, going on six years. And I think we know we're not going to get all the, all, you know, all the unicorns, all the great companies in money. That doesn't make sense. It's like impossible. Otherwise, you just do like spray and pray and invest in everything and just hope that you get um, a foot in. But I think what we what we do do well at Passion and what we believe is the right thing, we stay in touch with all those funders. And the reason why I, you know, I talk about them or give these companies shots um, is because we try to be helpful. It's better for the ecosystem, so maybe we didn't invest. Those founders are probably going to do another business after that, or their early team is going to, they're going to leave eventually, and they're going to start businesses, and hopefully we'll get a chance to work with them. So it's a very long-term game that we want to play and yeah. be involved in. But a slightly fun question for you. Someone wants to know what your most memorable pitch was. Could be a good or a bad one. Has <coughs> there been any really interesting or innovative way that someone's tried to pitch you? There have been really great ones, and, and I should remember, because I think everyone's one, if it's really, really that um, memorable, I tweet about it, and then I forget about it because I'm remembering it's terrible. But like, there have been things really extreme. There was one day, um, this is a bad one, don't do this. But this is what you're going to think is really creepy. But there's a, there was a time that somebody stood out in the rain all day waiting for me to get to the office because they wanted to hand me their business plan. Which was really, I felt really bad, but also it got to the point where it was a little bit creepy. And uh, because I think I was away for board meetings, so I wasn't going to be in. And so the office was like, because so, obviously he came up to the office and he wanted to give this plan. And they're like, well, she's not in. And he's like, okay, I'll just wait for her. And they're like, okay, you can wait here. And he's like, no, I'll just wait outside. And it was raining and he stood outside. And then, um, so I got a ping, and I'm like, so-and-so wanted to drop, they wouldn't give, he wouldn't give the name. He wants to give you his plan, but he won't give it to us. He says he has to hand it to you, and he's waiting outside in the rain. What should we do? And I was like, <laughs> tell him to come inside, right? Tell him I'm not due until one after this board meeting, but please get him to come inside, or just promise that you're going to give it to me. And they did, so Nicholas, our associate at the time, tried, the receptionist tried, Robert was like, coming through the side door. I'm like, that's not a solution. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Um, and I felt really bad about that, but that stands out in my mind as something that I think was uh, over the top and a little bit creepy and, and strange. But um, better pictures, maybe somebody recently, I did tweet about this maybe two weeks ago, somebody sent um, a, a shoebox sizing in one shoe, single shoe, I don't know if you can tell us. And not only was the pitch good because obviously you look at the shoe and you think about it and you read the letter, but as he wrote, what I thought was really relevant is, and very kind of geeky, was he sent a parcel and a package because the open rate on a parcel is 99%, whereas the open rate on an email is well less than 50%. So his whole point was, I actually know what open rates are in this conversion based open. Um, and then, you know, obviously he sent to multiple VCs and this whole thing was, I'll bring the other shoe if you take a pitch. It was the wrong size, so it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> but that was, that was kind of innovative. I think, actually, though, I feel bad when people go above and beyond for those kinds of things. I think they'll make for, um, you know, humorous tweets and stuff. But actually what really compels us the most is an introduction from somebody we know. You know, like if one of our founders, we've invested in 62 companies, so we've got over 100 co-founders in the portfolio. If one of those co-founders that we backed and we trust for their money says, I've got someone that I've met, even if I just met them, but I think what they're doing sounds really cool, you might want to meet them, we will take that meeting every single time. And even the poor guy who sent a shoe, I didn't, I didn't sit in that meeting because I just asked our associates to take the meeting because I felt bad and I thought it was nice and creative, but I wasn't going to sit in the meeting. So I think the best way to get a pitch across is to come in through somebody that we really know or trust. Yeah. Who here in the room is founder considering starting that company? Anyone? Oh god, don't be so shy. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I'm starting the company. I thought you were going to ask who was trying to pitch us. What makes for a good pitch? You know, when, when someone's early, at the stage in which you're investing, right, pre-seed, what are the, the key things that you're looking for in early yeah. stage? It's a really good question, but it's a really hard question to answer because I don't want people to write things down and be like, I'll do this, I'll do this, and I won't do that. Because it's not, it's not really a recipe, and it's very, um, 
I don't know how to describe it. It's very organic, and um, I get. I don't mean to trivialize it by comparing it to dating, but I think it is very similar because it all comes down to human nature. I think until we all get replaced by robot advisors or computers that are making decisions, that you know, we they are people that you're talking to. The other day, if you're trying to convince somebody to you know invest in you and back you, you are trying to convince them that you are trustworthy and you know can do good with their funds. They're going to base that off of you as an individual, and so. I, you know, I'm not making it trite by dating, but it is about the personal connection or getting them to be confident in you or have confidence in you. And I feel more comfortable saying that than I think most um, fund partners would because of how diverse our partnership is. I think it is risky if, frankly, it's an all-white male partnership and they're like, no, you have to connect with us people. That, that's a little, that could be potentially, you know, narrow. Um, but I think you've got, you know, an Asian-American, you've got a British, Italian and you've got a German national and between the three of us there's such a breadth of thought and, and it happens all the time right? something I think is amazing and they're like really or that they like and I'm like no of course not but between the three of us you know you get a cross-section and if all three of us are compelled then that's a pretty good tell I think um, and if all three of us are not into it I think that doesn't help either I mean there are the obvious things like yes we are wanting to invest in businesses I think you haven't read it on the blog now, you probably know that when venture capital investors invest, they are looking to make, on average, 10 times their money. And that's not a diss to people who are building businesses that aren't going to be that big, but you know, going to create great revenue generating, but maybe not 10 times money in value. But it's simply, we get money from investors, so we pitch investors ourselves. I mentioned the first fund was 37.5 million, our second fund is 45 million pounds. We got 45 million pounds. Um, in 2015 because we promised, not promised, but we pitched, <laughs> we sold, you know, those investors and saying we're going to give you a return, ideally three, four, five times your money back, which means, you know, if you have <coughs> already admitted, I can't do my head, four times of 45 million pounds is what, 180 million pounds. So we got a return, 180 million pounds. I've already also mentioned our average ownership is 15%. I'm not going to do that now. So let's say we get 10%. My point is we've got to make you know, 150, 160, what did I say? I don't even remember the number anymore. <laughs> pounds from our 10% ownership of the companies, which means those companies got to be worth 10 times 160 million, right? So 1.6 million. So that's why we need companies to generate about 10 times back for us, because on average, that's what we're going to get back to our investors. Um, so it's not anything personal, but that's the first thing we look for. Then the next thing is basically whether or not we believe these founders can achieve what they set out to achieve. Uh, part and parcel in that is, can you achieve it beyond a competitor? Like, what's what about the people right next to you that say they're going to do the same thing? Um, and what makes this different, unique, defensible? Um, so we do all that. And what helps, and what you'll hear other VCs say, is obviously traction, any data points, customer testimonials, references, all help to infuse this confidence, and that's that's what you're looking for. Um, so that's the only thing I can say. But it is a very personal connection, and we have also passed on investments where we have decided this is fine, it's great, people look like they're going to be able to pull it off, we totally buy this market and we get it. We have actually decided in our internal meeting we were going to invest, and then we, when we came around to, okay, who's going to sit on the board, and literally we all thought one of the others was going to sit on the board, we realized none of the three of us actually wanted to sit in the board meetings, and we realized we shouldn't invest. Because there's something about why would you want to spend time with these people? You should want to spend time with these people. Not because you want to be mates with them, but you want to help them through the business or support them through the business growth. And if we won't want to do that, then we won't invest either. So it really does come down to the people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are, what we have, we're about seven or so months on from the referendum, yeah. voting for the EU. Yeah. Um, seven months on, what are your current thoughts around Brexit? Should we be worried about Berlin, Amsterdam, Lisbon, someone else taking on London capital title? Okay. So obviously I have to answer this with different hats. Yes. But on this question I can answer it with all the same answer with my different hats. So on behalf of the government, on behalf of the Treasury, on behalf of an investor of passion, and on behalf of like a mum when my kids ask this, no, I don't think we should be worried. Do I think, you know, did I personally want to see UK leave Europe? No, personally I didn't. But I don't think there's a reason to worry. And actually I said very recently on record that, you know, people have asked about fintech specifically because maybe that's one of the things you can think about very specifically where passporting plays a role in companies' ability to service the market. And so will, you know, the UK be losing its edge, I guess, in fintech because of Brexit? I actually don't think the main threat to fintech in the UK is Brexit. I think a bigger threat, a competitive threat, is actually what's happening in Southeast Asia. I think Singapore, I think China, I think Asia, 
those are all massive, massive markets. And you look at robo-advice is something I mentioned recently. Something like the, the 10 biggest robo-advising companies in China are all bigger than all the rest combined. Each one of them is bigger than all the rest in the world combined, just based on volume. Um, so I don't think Brexit is a reason to worry. Then again, I'm probably one of these people that, you know, uh, even before I put on my government hat, I think whether for an investor or a founder, I talked about me making my life choices, I think chaos and uncertainty always gives room for opportunity. There's, you know, there's the opportunity for someone to step up or organizations to step up or sectors to step up, step up and just, you know, get shit done. And I think Brexit's going to happen now, one way or the other. We don't know how it's going to look. We have to, I think, assume... Um, even if it feels unnatural, that the people that are negotiating the deal, you know, are thinking about best case, worst case scenarios and going to try and get the best deal possible. I mean, even if I were to not have confidence in those people, I would say you'd have to think they would want to for, you know, their reputation. Like, nobody wants to be accused of getting a bad deal, right? So whatever the motivation, I think, um, you know, we have to trust that they're going to try and get this deal. If I had my government hat on, I'd say it much more positively, of course. But I think the net is the same. I don't think there's a reason to worry. I don't think, um, you know, it's like the sky is falling. Um, do I think that the sector, um, you know, might slow down a little bit or investors might slow down a little bit? Maybe. Um, but I think the other thing I think is that um, uh, cycles are very, you know, repetitive and they come back and forth and the pendulum always swings back and forth. And if it wasn't the financial crisis of 2007-2008, uh, if it wasn't the U.S. elections, if it wasn't Brexit, it would have been, you know, maybe it's the French elections coming up, maybe yeah. it's the German elections coming up. There are always reasons why if the market's going to be skittish, it's going to be skittish. If investors are going to hold off investing, <coughs> they will. Um, and I think that um, as a sector, especially tech, it's incredibly resilient. I've always found that founders and people in tech generally don't uh, consider like geopolitical situations when they start their companies. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit of a joke, but like, I don't know that Mark Zuckerberg was aware of who was like president when he decided to start, you know, Facebook as hot or not. No, because he just, he just thought it was something to do, or, you know, the guys who started eBay, it was to sell Pez, I don't know, you know, it was to sell Pez um, dispensers. It wasn't because of, you know, any geopolitical shifts. It's, you come up with a problem that you're trying to solve, you want to build something, you want to build something great, and you do that, and I think, um, the opportunity is great to, to try and do that now while everybody else is distracted by a whole bunch of, um, you know, noise that we might not necessarily see the outcome of for two years. Yeah. That's good. As a communications expert, I agree. So I'm going to throw a couple more personal questions at you and then we're going to wrap up. You know, what do you, if you have to narrow it down to one thing, what's the, the thing that you love about what you do? Oh gosh, there isn't just one thing. Um, you can have many. I've, I've yeah, there's I mean, I, like I said, uh, hopefully I've said a lot, and I don't know if I've said enough, but I do feel very, very lucky. So I think what I love is that I'm in a situation where I get to do uh, things that I enjoy, I get to work people, uh, work with people that I really enjoy, um, and I, I did mean it when, you know, if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't be trying to find another Skype. Like, I really thought it was amazing to, you know, a company where nobody knew how to pronounce it or what it was for, to one that literally changed, you know, the telecommunications industry, um, you know, and sold for $4 billion the first time and then $8 billion the second time. I, I think it was a massive force, and I, I'm really proud to have been part of it. And I, I, it's happening all the time, though, whether it's Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, you know, Google, you know, everything that's come after it. Stripe is amazing. You know, these... Companies are, are making a big difference. Obviously, there's Uber. It's just what's happened, you know, in the last 10 years is just absolutely almost incomprehensible <coughs> with respect to tech. And I actually now open a lot of speeches I give by, by pointing out to people the iPhone, while we think of it and celebrating, oh, it's 10 years old now, it is only 10 years old. And, like, if you think about the X Factor as a program, right? It sounds silly, but I think of X Factor as relatively modern entertainment. It was actually first on air before the iPhone was introduced. So that just gives you a bit of a feeling, or you know, because you know this book, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think of that as relatively modern fiction. That was published before the iPhone came out. So all of the things that we have seen affect what we do on a daily basis, whether it's Uber, or whether it's payments, or whether it's like flight ticketing, or literally everything we do has happened in the last 10 years. And the forces that are being affected, whether it's labor markets, it's consumer uh, consumption, but it's how businesses are doing things, it's how money is being transacted, it's unprecedented, and you know, people talk about it like a fourth industrial revolution. I think it's actually bigger than that, and I think that understates it because nothing else, in other in terms of the other 
things that have been termed industrial revolutions, happened in such a small period of time. And it is such an amazing time. Like, history will look back on this time and, and just talk about how quickly everything happened and how everything changed. And we're a part of it, and I just feel like that's a hugely privileged position to be in, no matter what role I played. Being an investor, of course, is fantastic because I don't know if I'm right or not, but I, you know, people are interested in our feedback on whether or not we think something can be successful. That is a hugely privileged position, but it also gives me the chance to work with these people to try and build them up. Um, I feel very lucky because, as an investor, you know, my working hours can be largely defined by myself. I mean, I, I do more than like one to three in the afternoon at work, but you know, if I'm not in the office at 9 a.m., it's okay, you know, with my business partners anyway, and it's it's me to dictate when I can take meetings, and I feel very lucky for that. You know, the government stuff, I mentioned I had said no initially. I think it's, you know, it, again, it's a privilege because I also realized if they're going to ask somebody for their opinion on what might help the digital economy, you know, maybe it's not a bad thing for me to give my two cents. Um, and I, you know, happened to think that initially when they were asking other people, you know, that maybe those weren't the most important people because they might have been people at corporates that were supporting tech or something like I felt like, no, they should really know what a startup really thinks even the most jaded startups. And I think for a long time, people were probably telling government um, people just things they wanted to hear because they probably wanted to be in government, if that makes any sense. And I didn't think there was a true dialogue with the tech sector. So that's why I do that. And I think that's, I'm very fortunate that um, I love having kids. I might have more, I don't know. So I think I'm really lucky with that too. So every part that I think of, I mean, I think just in terms of where I am, I just feel very, very lucky. But I also, you know, I think, I don't know how to explain it. It's a different metric. I think. I just want to say, like, I think a lot of people think because I'm a venture capital investor, maybe I've put my own money into it, or I've I've got a certain amount of money. The thing is, I don't really have a lot of money. Um, part of the reason that I was fired from Skype was because also I wasn't paid for like seven months. This came out too, and I, this is a whole other topic too. But my my what I was the reason I mentioned this is I've never actually made a decision. This means I have a luxury, uh, but I don't actually have a trust fund. It's just that I always knew I could get a job that would pay me if I needed the salary because I could always like. Do consulting or write a report on something for somebody probably but I always chose to do what I wanted to do mostly on what I thought I was gonna get out of it not a salary what we do at passion is amazing of course I draw a salary but the interesting thing is if you read about it venture capital funds the managers are meant to contribute some to the fund itself so that people who invest in us will think we have skin in the game I don't actually have the money to do that so I actually I borrow against my partners and all things so my point is it's not I don't feel lucky because I'm rich. I think it's all very relative, and I'm very, very fortunate. But I enjoy doing what I'm doing because, and I would make a lot more money if I tried to get a job at the time ago. But um, I enjoy doing what I'm doing because the people that we're talking to, I think the things that we're doing, I, I think it's amazing. You know, I think I don't even know. I know I sound really cheesy, but I don't know how to explain. There's a yeah. whole generation before us, you know, that don't really understand how quickly things are changing and how quickly things are moving. And I don't think in ten years' time we'll talk about tech as its own sector. It just does not make sense. Even to me now, it doesn't make sense. Like fintech doesn't make sense. It's just financial services. Because obviously, to be relevant as a financial services business, you're going to be employing technology. Like there's no financial services without tech. But that applies to every single sector. And I think there will be a time when nobody thinks about that anymore. But we're still in this trans this transition period, and I think it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Um, and I think we're very lucky to be part of it. Sorry, so cheesy. <laughs> hey, I think Gina underrates it. She says it's a great thing. Final, final question. Is there one piece of advice that you would give to everyone? I think kind of looking at the room generally, looking at <coughs> generations that people are, obviously everyone's here doing what they can for their career. Is there a piece of advice that you can ask on when you career as well? Well, I don't think so. I think so. Probably because I also don't like it when people give me advice, so I'd love to. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think I have one piece of advice. I don't know. I mean, I think the. I think the thing I would say is um, just to try and do what you want to do. That also sounds very, very cheesy, but I think there are a lot of people who will be like, oh, it would be really cool to do um, whatever it is. And I'm not necessarily talking about career or work and be like, oh, no, but I won't do it. But I think maybe just ask yourself, why not? You know, um, if I just think people should try, and I think we are in a very fortunate time. If everyone's in this room, they are tech savvy to a certain degree. You could always get a job consulting to some very old school industry and writing some paper about them for digital transformation. Anyone, <laughs> I guarantee you. That's right. I'm sure. I don't even know what your roles are, but I'm sure just just the fact that you came to the strike offices and you're at this, you know, you could do that. So, 
you you know you will be able to get a free less gig if you need it. But in the meantime, for some amount of time, maybe it's a day, maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a stuff. If there's something that you want to try and do, I think you should try it and do it. That's the only thing. Because I don't think you want to look back and say, you know, I should have done that. And I think I've been very lucky because all the things that have been fired, I've been, oh, I haven't gotten this, I've been divorced twice, you know, it's not all So all this stuff, but I would never look back on every, anything, whether it's being fired or any of those things, and think, you know, I wish I hadn't done that, or I wish I had done something different. And I feel lucky probably because of that. And so I would not want anyone else to think that someday. Yeah. I think it's a very good quote from the court. So um, can you all join me in a round of applause for Eileen? <laughs>